0: I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady.
1: This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Alright everybody, welcome back. So in today's episode, we are incredibly excited to bring you two of our new friends, Rory Byer and Samir Jaffrey from Avive Solutions. So essentially... This is the first of three episodes where we get to sit down with these innovators of the groundbreaking technology, which is the new um, and recently released Vive Connect AED. So this AED is incredible. It's going to blow your mind. Um, And essentially, this is hopefully going to be solving one of the biggest problems in emergency medicine, which is essentially how do we get early defibrillation to the side of, of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So this Avive, this, this smart connected AED approaches um, that problem like it's never been approached before. But not only do we have a new device to share and talk about in this conversation, we are also talking about the project called 4-Minute City Project, which uh, which is the brainchild of these gentlemen and how essentially they are going to be changing culture within this country to approach um, out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest. So with all that to say, Episode 1, we're talking about the history of Evive, and we're talking about how the relationship started and where the idea for this smart, connected AED came from. Episode 2, we're going to be talking about the four-minute city. We're going to be talking about essentially how this connected technology is going to revamp everything we've ever known about approaching out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And then episode three, we're actually getting a product introduction from Rory and Samir. So we really hope that you all are as excited as we are about uh, the future that uh, that this AED and the 4-Minute City project is going to be bringing to the table. Uh, you can check out more about Avive and learn more about them and the project at www.avive.life. Uh, make sure to check them out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and look at their videos on YouTube because I can sit here and explain to you all day long how it works, but uh, a couple of the videos that they've posted on YouTube says it all.
0: So. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, gentlemen. Welcome.
2: Awesome to be here. Thank you.
0: We Absolutely. usually have an applause meter. Yeah, it must be broken. We can, we
2: can do it for ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> for yourselves. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, so we've got a we've got a lot to talk about, and uh, this is uh, you know incredibly exciting thing, and um, something that is going to be disruptive in. Uh, the eight—not only the AED industry, but really in the whole cardiac arrest community. But before we get into that, we need to hear a little bit um, about you guys: who you are, where you came from, your, uh, you know, just kind of what uh, what makes you tick. Because I think that uh, brings a lot to um, the uh, the project and what we're doing. So um, I don't know which one of you all want to start, but.
2: Well, the journey for a vibe begins with Rory, so I think I should start there. And yeah,
0: then let's start there. Where yes. where were you born? Yeah. Was it nighttime, daytime?
3: <laughs> I was born uh, <laughs> in California and uh, the San Francisco area. It was 10 p.m. I think 10:05, so you know, I'm a, a nighttime baby, I suppose. Um, but no, I was born, and raised in California. And I grew up there. Um, one of the things that you know I really got into as a You know, teenager in high school and all that kind of stuff was the outdoors and athletics. I ran cross country, I ran track. I spent a few summers as a backpacking guide up in Yosemite National Park, um, and you really just fell in love with it. So um, I, you know, after kind of upbringing, I got out to Boston to go to college um, out at MIT, and I studied electrical engineering and mechanical engineering while I was out there, Um, and so. Moved out to Boston, went through that, and um, we'll probably get into it, but the origins of a came out of our final year, um, myself and our third co-founder, Mosley, um, our final year at MIT as part of a capstone design course that we'll get into. But uh, for me personally, born and raised in California, went out to Boston for college, and then came back to California to found the company. Awesome.
0: Awesome. And we'll come back to that, but Samir, introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit your background.
2: Yeah. Um, Hey bro, my name's is Samir. I, um, you know, I'm from, I'm from down South. I'm from Texas and I was born and raised in Houston. Uh, that's where most of my family lives and have a really large family out there. But, um, growing up, I was, uh, uh, very much into sports, um, uh, maybe not as crazy as Rory with the outdoors. And maybe you guys will get him to tell a couple of those crazy stories on this. We'll see. Um, but fell in love with baseball and played at baseball for about 18 years of my life. And, um, you know, I'm an Astros fan. I'll proclaim it on this podcast. I'm not scared. <laughs> um, and, uh, but uh, no, I'm from Houston. Um, moved out to California, um, San Diego specifically, um, when I was about ten or so, and have lived in California since then. Um, had the fortune to go to college at UCLA and um, study nothing related to anything we're doing here. I got a political science degree, but um, while I was there, um, had um, was really uh, fortunate to be able to start a nonprofit in the space of cardiac arrest prevention in youth, and that's really how my story tied into what Rory and Mosley were doing. Um, well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but it was through that that I met them um, at an industry conference in, in early 2017, and that's kind of how the story of Avive began. My my dad's a serial entrepreneur, and I thought I would never. I told him that I thought what he did is incredibly boring um, when I was younger, but I guess. I, uh, I'm eating my words now. So, <laughs> and just to, just to
0: back up on that. So you started a nonprofit while you were in college, what year in college were you?
2: I was a it was freshman going into my sophomore year. Um, and so maybe the quick backstory is, um, you know, family has been impacted by cardiac arrest through multiple generations. It's something that I was, um, exposed to, um, in my childhood and something that, Um, was an important part of my life. And so when I got to college at UCLA, um, I was inspired by a nonprofit in San Diego called the Eric Paredes Save-A-Life Foundation. And that was started by Rena and Hector Paredes in honor of uh, her son or their son, Eric, who passed from cardiac arrest um, as a freshman in high school. Um, You know, perfectly healthy, great wrestler. And and they found him on the kitchen floor one day, um, unfortunately passed from cardiac arrest and that that created a lot of waves in the San Diego community when things like that happen and my mom was a physician at the same clinic as Rena she was a nurse and um started volunteering at Rena's heart screenings that they started to put on to try to detect un, uh, undetected heart conditions in youth and i got really involved in that foundation there's a really embarrassing picture of me that's like on their truck with all their ecg screening supplies as like their poster boy and so I kind of was indoctrinated and just had to keep going with it, I guess. And so um, when I got to college, I started a nonprofit, and it's still running today. It's called Saving Hearts Foundation. We screened over 5,000 kids, and it found one in 300, you know, kids had a condition that they didn't know about before. So it became a part, a big part of my life. And Samir, I want to, I want to ask that was uh, you said that was completely independent of your major and of your studies, correct? Yep. Not a lot of uh, ECG screenings in the political science degree. So, yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, <laughs> that,
1: that's pretty remarkable for someone to have a passion like that and take that on, you know, with a with
0: a demanding load that you had, I'm sure. So, yeah, so, no, it
2: was it was very much a passion project. But yeah, go
0: ahead, Jason. Um, so let me start with that. Do you mind talking about um a little bit more about what had happened in your family and kind of what drove your passion uh, for cardiac arrest?
2: You know, one of the things that inspired me to to really um, get involved in this space was, um, you know, my my family's been touched by cardiac arrest throughout multiple generations, um, starting with my great grandfather who passed way too young in his um, you know late 30s, early 40s. Um, have had um, people uh, in their 50s in my family pass suddenly. Um, most recently, had. Um, um, it, it elders, you know, in his late seventies, but probably still too young and was completely healthy, um, passed as well following having a surgery. Um, and, uh, you know, so there wasn't like a specific one cardiac arrest event that, uh, really drove me to get involved in this, but it's been something that's, that's touched us throughout multiple generations, um, as well as being close to, um, Rina and Hector Paredes and really getting involved in, in that foundation i think the tie to me really there guys was like eric was an amazing wrestler i was an athlete my my student athlete my whole life and i was like holy cow um this can happen to someone my age we're both equally healthy normal kids and it can just happen out of nowhere and now someone's life and the community's life completely changes that was the moment it really hit me like it happens in your family but that one was like Darn! It can happen to someone just like me, um, and and that's what really drove me to start getting involved and start Saving Hearts Foundation when I got to, to college.
0: Nice. So let's go back to Rory. So, Rory, you're um, enrolled in school, uh, and you said uh, you're studying engineering. Um, as you came to your capstone project, tell us about kind of where you were and how you uh, decided to do the capstone project that you did.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, it's it was a fun journey. We the premise of the capstone is that every uh, graduating senior at MIT in mechanical engineering has to take, you know, one of two capstone design courses and in one of them you actually get teamed up with a fairly large team and you get one semester to brainstorm a bunch of different ideas, prototype some of them, uh, get a little further along with one or two of them and then, you know, in the end uh, settle upon one that you build a really working functional prototype. Uh, with by the end of the semester. And there's a lot of, you know, financial support that goes into this course. And there's a lot of, um, you know, resources that you get to do quick turn fabrications and get into the machine shops and really do things quickly. So as part of that brainstorming, you know, Mosley and I were good friends. um, And one of the first exercises you have to do is come up with 20 ideas, you know, for one of the days of this course, kind of in the early days, And we're sitting there in the, um, you know, in my dormitory room and basically uh, we're at idea number 19 and we're trying to get to number 20. (laughs) Um, And Mosley kind of sits there and he's thinking and, you know, that that day he had been in the in a in a uh, research lab with a different friend uh, where they were defibrillating rabbits. Um, They were doing some studies on responses to defibrillating rabbits in some different ways. And. He was sitting there playing on his phone and he, he kind of just says, you know, I think there's enough energy in your phone to, to like defibrillate something. Um, and we kind of sit there and we're like, I don't think that's really a real thing. I think that's kind of silly that like, there's no way. Um, but we needed a 20th idea. And so we put it down Um and so we got there people thought it was a pretty interesting idea. You know, Would there be a possibility to make a defibrillator actually from a cell phone uh, was kind of the the pathway that we were thinking along. And we chose it as one of the initial ideas that we were going to prototype, again, just as this kind of far out there idea. Maybe there's something interesting there. The premise and kind of motivation behind it was really more, if you could do something like that, you can offload a lot of things from what a current defibrillator has and you can make it small, you can make it portable, you can make it something that is viable for my, you know, backpacking, guiding out in Yosemite. You can make it ski patrollers have it. You can, a lot of use cases that could benefit from something that's more in your pocket and you know, whatever. And so, okay,
0: hang on, hang on a second. I, I got to yeah. stop there for just a second because, um, I, I want to go, I want to go back to that. Cause I want to get your, your reaction again when Mosley said that, like you're going to take a phone and, and what, what year is this and what generation phone are we talking about? Is this <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, so, yeah, I mean, not to say a brand or anything, but here like, we go. Here like, we go. But but when you hear this, is this like this is insane? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. There's no way. Is it gonna like blow up your phone to take that much? Like wh- how how realistic was this, and how serious was he?
3: You know, I, I I gotta say the the initial reaction was one of there's there's no way that that was the reaction of. There's no way that you've got enough power in your phone. I don't even know if you can extract power from a phone, right? There's power supposed to go into the phone to charge it, not out of it, right? Yeah. Um, And you've got this whole problem of, you know, like, who knows what kind of phone people have? People have iPhones, people have Android phones, people have Motorola phones. This was, you know, fall of 2016, right? So, you know, phones were advanced enough at that point that they were, you know, smart and and they had a lot of features in them. But, yeah, the initial reaction was, that's there's no way. Um, I don't even think it would work from an energy perspective, even if you could do it. And we need a 20th idea, so fine, we'll put it, but like, there's no way that's going to work. That that was the reaction.
0: Okay, so even when he mentioned it, this was just kind of a crazy 20th idea, um, not really thought through of whether or not it was even feasible, just kind of just a crazy thing somebody throwing out there.
2: Yeah, mostly energy calculations. And-
3: yeah, you know, mostly like he sat there and he defended it there for a couple minutes of like, no, I think that you could do this and that and it would work and, and I just kind of rolled my eyes and I said to okay. like, okay, like, fine, good enough to put on the on the list, but I don't believe you.
0: <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So so go from there. We got past the the uh, this is crazy. To uh, all right, keep going.
3: Yeah, and so we we get to this. We so we we kind of we, we go to it. People are really interested in this idea. Um, both our team, other people that kind of are involved in this in this process, and so we we end up um, going with it and trying it as one of the kind of four or five that we're going to prototype and really try. And, and you know, Moses is convinced at this point, and he's convinced himself that the energy calculations do work and that it is possible. And that if you could do it, then then it could work. And so um, there's a kind of smaller team that focuses on this prototype. There's a couple other teams that focus on other ones. Etc. And, you know, we kind of get going in this process and we're a couple of weeks in and, you know, we're able to actually start um, doing much smaller scale versions of a defibrillator where we might not do a full 150 joule shock that you might expect from a defibrillator, but we can maybe do a 10 or 20 joule shock. Okay. Um, and we can actually get power out of a phone and we can have it go and charge something in, in our device and we can have it kind of be uh, used to discharge into some load, and and that seems to work, and so um, it kind of makes it to the final two projects that we have to choose from. Um, and there's enough of a proof of concept there that the team decides, like this one, if we can actually pull it off, we think could have a huge impact. Right? I mean, the initial idea was in this uh, in this space of again more the wilderness medicine, the portable use case, the um, making it a little bit more friendly and intuitive to a user who's never used one of these things before because they're just using your phone, right, to use this defibrillator. Um, and so we were convinced and we we picked it as our project we were going to go for. And the next month uh, was essentially about taking it from that proof of concept point to something that was a fully working defibrillator. <laughs> um, and so we spent a month and the team was just completely like, in the lab all the time, all day, all night. And, and we ended up um, in December and that would have been December of 2016, um, you know, coming to our final presentations for this course with a device that, that worked. And so you have to understand that this kind of final presentation is a very big deal when you're kind of in that scenario. And so it's, a few thousand people that are there live in the uh, largest auditorium at MIT. You've got several thousand more that are live streaming the event online and watching it. You have, um, a band that is, you know, (laughs) playing custom songs for each colored team. So we were the pink team. So it's playing a custom pink team song that they wrote for this as like an intro to us coming on stage. Like it's kind of a, you know, they really have a whole production value to this thing. Um, And, you know, we, we go and really the, the demonstration is, um, you know, plugging in a phone, uh, having that phone take about a minute to charge up a, you know, defibrillator and then delivering a full 150 joule biphasic shock from that, from that device. The device at the time was a, you know, something that was fairly small. Um, it was kind of a tube shaped, uh, and, and I think very, I mean, very small compared to anything out there today. Um, and, and that really was the, um, you know, the goal of this final presentation that we were able to build this prototype that worked.
0: Okay. So explain that a little bit more. And, and I know, um, I'm probably not going to understand any of it, but so you, you have a phone. What, where do you, what do you plug into it? I mean, yeah. it's just defibrillator pads. You plug into the power cord and you hit, you know, you hit shock and boom, 150 joules come out. How does that kind of, yeah. uh, in easy terms work?
3: Yeah, no, the, so basically you got to imagine we had this kind of water bottle size and water bottle shaped device. Um, and the top of it had a little cap and you would take the cap off and there'd be like a three-prong cable. So it had a, you know, a lightning port for an Apple phone. It had the Android phone one and it had like a USB-C one. Or, yeah, I think those are the three. And you would basically pop it off. You'd plug in one of those items. And when you plugged it in, um, essentially the device would start... Pulling power from the phone immediately. Um, so it would start kind of extracting power and extracting it slowly from the phone um, and charging up some of the internal electronics that exist in this device. Um, at the same time, it, your phone would launch an app that was built onto the phone and it would know that to do so because you plugged it into the defibrillator device and it would essentially start talking. Um, so giving you audio instructions and giving you some visuals uh, on the app as well for, you know, what to do, i.e. go place the pads on the patient and etc. So the pads were also tucked within this kind of um, top that you popped off, right? You could pull them out as a little pull tab uh, and you put them on a patient and it would show you a picture of how you were supposed to place them. And the thought was, although it took a minute to charge up, you know, it takes a minute for anybody to set the thing up and get the pads on the person anyway. And so you weren't really losing a whole lot of time. It would take about one and a half percent of the phone battery per shock. And that was it, um, which is pretty remarkable. <laughs>
0: at a hundred, so a hundred and fifty joules takes about a, a percent and a half from the phone.
3: That's what we were seeing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and then basically, um, it would uh, at the time we had not developed a full on algorithm to actually detect whether you were in a cardiac arrest or not. That was just more of a It's gonna. It's a shock box at that point. That was maybe a future development activity that would have been needed, Um, but uh, but we really just at that point, you know, delivered this uh, basic biphasic defibrillation shock um, into a mannequin that we had set up where it had some pads that you could shock into on this mannequin, and so kind of the demo was you would take the device, you'd pop off the cap, you plug it into the phone, you would. Uh, have the phone app launch, walk you through how to use it, including placing the pads on this mannequin that could absorb the shock. You would deliver the shock. And then uh, you could see a big graph on the big screen of the shock measurement and showing that it's, you know, the proper 150 joules and that it's the appropriate waveform um, and all of that.
1: So two questions on that. How fast did, um, did you get feedback? Did you get feedback from the crowd or from your professors in general? And then also, were you met with any skepticism or did they start immediately like, oh, this will never work like that? But what was the feedback
3: like? Oh, there was um, definite feedback from both an engineering perspective and a um, what I'll call like a, should you really be using people's phones to do something like this (laughs) perspective? Maybe. (laughs) um and so from an engineering perspective of course during the course you're getting a lot of you know feedback from your professors and from your lab instructors on how to design things how to build things and that's kind of what you're expecting the we also did user interviews with some you know groups some nonprofits that were in the cardiac arrest space for kind of what kind of features they would want all that type of stuff and then from a feedback perspective externally there's really none until that moment right until you're at the um you know you're not sharing anything about this um, you file some provisional patents before the final presentation. even um you know you don't share anything about it until that moment. and there's there's a really funny moment that I remember, actually, which was um there's a lot of industry representatives that come to this, um including some from Apple, uh, some from you know other technology companies. And Apple's always been a little bit more locked down in terms of what they permit your phone to do. Um, and so, uh, there is this, you know, kind of approval process to be able to even extract power from an Apple phone. That's a lot more stringent than it was at the time for non-Apple phones. Um, and so there is a question that got asked at some point of, "Oh, you use an Android phone for your demo? Why didn't you use an Apple phone?" And we gave this really, at the time, we thought smart response, you know, to the Apple people sitting in the front row there of, "Well, our Apple friends here, you know, require a little more approvals and." And they're not quite ready to give it to a bunch of college kids. And so we need to, you know, use the Android one for now, right? Um, and, and so that was kind of like a fun little moment for us. But in general, um, it was very well received. So when we delivered that shock, the audience had a big old applause, <laughs> a little bit of a you know, deep breath of air for the team that, you know, it worked. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then after that, you get into kind of the rest of the presentation and, and into questions and answers and all that uh, portion of it.
0: So what was your time frame from idea to this presentation?
2: Uh, about th- three months. Doesn't <laughs> that just make you feel inadequate, Jason? Like me, I, I listened to that and I'm like, the intelligence is annoying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's annoying. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I didn't know, even know like an intelligent question to even ask. Yeah. So, okay, so so this sounds just absolutely insane. But just to put this in perspective, how many other projects are going on at this presentation, and where does this fit? Is this list like blowing everybody away, or is this MIT? and this is like, uh eh, okay, this is what we do
3: <laughs> yeah, there's there's eight projects. there's um you know typically a like quote winning project of the year and and you know this one was the winning project of the year. um
0: okay, is- so out of eight projects, this one took the top prize. I mean, won the whole thing.
3: Yeah. Um and and you know, there's a bunch of other cool ones, obviously. Uh, and every year there's a bunch of cool ones that come out of it. Um but yeah, it was it was it was very well received. You know, and afterwards, you know, you have a sort of an open kind of area where people can come up and you know, we got a lot of people coming up wanting to see the device, want to hold it, wanna understand how it works, you know, all those types of things. So it was very well received, um, in general.
0: Okay, so uh in the in the days following is does this just become a Oh, what a nice project. We got a good grade. We got a good award. Now let's move on to uh, what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. Where did you go from here with that?
3: Yeah, it was a, it was really one of those situations that comes about just by happenstance. You know, one of the groups that we had um, done a user interview kind of along the way with, to get some ideas for features and what the, what people might like um, was a nonprofit group called parent heart watch Um, and they have an annual conference that happens in January every year um and and so they saw our presentation right because it was you know live streamed and we had you know, reached out to them about it so they had an interest in it and shortly after it they they sent us an email saying hey we have this annual conference in January it's in Tucson Arizona um you know we'd love for you to come present your device to to the conference um and January for MIT is this weird inter Um, semester period where you don't have your normal classes. You're kind of in a, you can take some special classes that are like one month, just focused efforts, or you can not do anything. You can travel, you can go get some uh, internships, whatever you want to do. And so for me, I was in Boston, you know, this was a free trip to Arizona where it was going to be nice and warm in January. Um, And of the team, I was the only one that wanted to go basically. And so (laughs) I got my free plane ticket. I was, you know, at my free hotel room, real excited about it, um, and and I flew out there. And so um, that really ended up being a very uh, monumental decision uh, that I did not appreciate at the time. I thought we were just going to go present it, and you know, it'd be interesting, and, and we'd move on, like you said, to to what we're going to do with our lives and with, with our careers. Um, but we uh, we ended up having a really fantastic. Um, conference at this, at this, uh, at this event in January. And so I show up, um, uh, the first night of the conference is a very emotional night. Um, one of the big themes and one of the big focuses for this is parents who have lost children to cardiac arrest or have had near misses, um, and have had children who have been saved thankfully. But the first night, um, obviously I know nobody there. I kind of walk into the big banquet hall, um, I kind of linger in the back because I don't really know what's going to happen, and because I don't know anybody, and so I just kind of wait till there's no more seats left. And I'll just take the last one. It's kind of my approach, um, and so I wait for that to happen. I find that last little empty seat. Um, I sit down in that last little empty seat, and I just start talking to the table. And they're like, "You know, who are you? What What are you doing here?" I tell them about this device that we'd built, and and they're just like. Super interested in it, right they're just kind of like asking all these questions, and they're like really fascinated and, and they're really interested and Then the programming starts where it's you know tributes to all these children who have lost their life i mean it's one of the most emotional evenings I've probably ever had in my life um it's it's just it's just it just hits you so hard when you see these pictures, when you see parents, when you see community members who have been so so impacted by these things um and 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 so that was just a insane night, right? Of just not expecting any of that emotion, not expecting to meet anybody who would really care about why I was there. Um, just totally different than what I thought. The person who I sat next to, um, you know, knew of one other low twenties individual. There's not too many of them uh, at these kind of conferences, uh, and that would have, that was Samir, who was there for Saving Hearts Foundation for his nonprofit. Um, and so the next day, you know, they made an introduction as two of the only people, you know, under the age of like, I don't know, thirty five, forty maybe. <laughs> um, and uh, and so we we met, and you know, I told them about the the device, and um, and we really hit it off from there. There was a scheduled slot where we were going to have our presentation, and I had this kind of whole long presentation about like this device and how it worked, and you know, all this like technical detail and all this stuff. And I remember like showing Samir this presentation and him just saying, so you need to do none of that. You need to go up there and you need to do a demo of your thing and say really high level stuff, but you shouldn't just be like talking about how this thing works up there. This is a really, really interesting thing that you've built here. Um, And so when it came time for the conference presentation, um, I get up there um, a little bit nervous, obviously. Um, It was a well-attended presentation I think pretty much everybody went to this one uh, which I was not expecting Um, and I start and I start to do a demo and there's just this moment where I'm on stage I'm like got my little mannequin set up on a table I've got the device on that table ready to demo and the entire conference hall I mean hundreds of people stand up like literally stand up out of their seats and just like I don't want to say mob but aggressively crowd the stage at the front so they can see this like in a better way. And, and that was just this moment of like, Oh my goodness. Like people are, people are really interested in this. Um, and so like I do my demo, I think it goes over well. And I just like night and day before that, I knew the few people that I'd been introduced to or happened to sit next to at some meal or something like that and after that i was just everybody's best friend like i i just i couldn't have a moment of not being just like bombarded with people whether it was like manufacturers reps whether it was <laughs> medical professionals whether it was legislative people whether it was parents whether it was nonprofit um you know uh, people it, it just the whole gamut was just so interested in in learning about this and i think for me that was the moment where it really shifted to um We've got something here worth doing because seeing that type of validation from, you know, a group that I viewed as the, the trenches of cardiac arrest, right, and and sees this every day, lives this every day, breathes this every day, um, have that much excitement and anticipation about this product. Um, that's that's different and that's more special than seeing even the response at MIT, right? Because that's a technology focus. We built a really cool product, really interesting technology. But this is there's a real need for this, and and just these stories that I had parents come up to me and tell, hey, if this device existed, that could have been the difference that we could have had this thing out of the baseball field when when Johnny you know had his cardiac arrest, and and in tears telling me something like that, and and just the impact that you can instantly see from from that type of moment was just special, was a huge turning point, and and really shifted the thought process to. Um, maybe we should really pursue this as a company. Um, had you
1: had you ever had any experience in medicine or ever thought that you would you would ever get into the world of medicine at all even you know by technology like this?
3: You know I I really I really didn't. Um I mean I, I was never opposed to it but it was never something that I was particularly drawn to. Mosley was a little bit more on the biomedical and mechanical engineering side mm-hmm. and so he Um, I think did have a little bit more of a passion for kind of medicine or biomedical engineering type of work. Um, I had interned at Apple the previous summer. So all these, you know uh, these technologies, like that's probably what I was going to go do, right. Is just go, you know, be a product engineer at Apple, like not in healthcare.
2: Um, So,
1: so that's why I'm asking, like, I can't imagine the, the massive feeling of, Oh my gosh, I could potentially change people's lives. I mean, was it, was it overwhelming? Was it like an instant thing or had you kind of known that for a while?
3: You know, I, I, it was a pretty instant thing to be honest. Um, I think that like you, you kind of peripherally know it um, when you're developing a medical device, right in this prototyping phase, but you don't really like appreciate it in the same way that um, when you, when you are hearing it and seeing it that directly from the people who, who are using it, who are knowing that problem and who are living it. Right. And so like, yes, you kind of know it. Hey, this device could really do a lot to, you know, to a lot of people, you know, that when you're developing it, but you don't, you don't really feel that until you come face to face with the people that it's most uh, going to impact, I think.
0: So let me take this from your point of view, of Samir. So kind of take mm-hmm. us back to that first evening when, um, you know, <laughs> this uh, little timid, timid uh, college student sits down next to you and, you know, you start to have this conversation. Tell us your perspective of that evening.
2: Well, so I was um, a bad speaker at this conference and showed up late. Um, So I was not there that first evening on Friday night, Um, although my friends are the ones he sat next to. um, And I call them friends because I had worked with them so closely and, and really developed a friendship in the world of cardiac arrest prevention and youth specifically. And that's what Parent Heart Watch is, is they do unbelievable work across the country bringing together nonprofits that are focused on Preventing cardiac arrest in youth, both through preventative screening, but also um, helping deploy AEDs in in areas where youth are frequently, like um, sports fields, school districts, et cetera. Um, so I wasn't there that night, and so Rory Rory was on his own. But that next morning is where maybe I entered the picture. Uh, our friend um, uh, Liz Lazar and, and Pam Dodson at, at a nonprofit called um, Via Heart Project in the Bay Area um, came up to me at breakfast and it's early in the morning, like seven 30. And they're so excited. And they come and sit next to me like, Samir, there's this kid, he's from Boston. You're going to sit next to him today. And I'm like, okay, hi, Liz. Nice to see you. Um, (laughs) but that, 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 um, that's how it happened. And so then uh, it was kind of like motherly thing where they bring Rory and like, Rory sit here, Samir sit here. And, um, we sat next to each other throughout the day at the conference and, um, just as people were presenting, I guess we weren't really listening. We were more just talking and learning about what each other did and our backgrounds. And, um, you know, I, I immediately, um, unlike Rory maybe who needed the experience to, uh, and in, in feeling the emotion from, from the people there to understand the potential massive impact he could have, I think I knew it in like five seconds. Um, and just like everybody else in that room did. Um, and so I, um, I was immediately, uh, enthused by it. I thought, um, we've got to somehow convince these guys to like continue on with this work. Because I think Rory, to be fair, like at that moment, you were just like, yeah, we're just going to like, it's cool. We did it. And now we're going to go on with our lives. Like you said, but kind of my mission that weekend became like somehow convince them that this is worth pursuing after college. And yeah, you have these cool jobs lined up and all that from MIT, but like this is the thing that is going to make an impact and a difference in the world. And so, Uh, We talked even like late that night. I remember in your room, that's when we were looking at your presentation. And of course, this guy being an engineer and like, you know, wanting to show how cool what him and Mosley and the team had built there had all these like details technically of how they built it. And we were like, no man, you got to take all that out. Cause like, you're going to have to go actually do this and build a company one day. And uh, you don't want to give away all that information um, your first day here. And so um, that's really where I came at it from was like, all right, this is going to be big and it's going to make an impact on people. And that's what I love and am and, and driven by the most is working on projects that can help others. And so my mission the next two days became uh, find a way to make them keep going with it beyond, uh, beyond that day, that weekend.
0: Yeah. So Rory, did that, what did that sound like? Is that, were you on a different path of, uh, you know, you had some stuff lined up and uh, you just kind of took a left turn there and decided... No, this is going to become your life's work.
3: Pretty much, I again, I had, I had, um, I had interned at Apple the previous summer. I probably was going to go back and work at Apple the next year, you know. And I, that's that was really all that I had in my mind at that point, and just a normal, you know, tech job, and it would be good and it'd be interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I think that going into that weekend, I, I truly was there because it was a plain ticket that was paid for and a hotel that was paid for and it was warm in Tucson instead of being in the winter in Boston. And like, why not? Right. It's been an interesting experience. Like That's why I went. Um, and so I, yeah, I walked out of that with a very different mindset than, uh, than that, uh, which is, which is good in the end, but, uh, but yeah, it was a big decision to go in, in at the end of the day.
0: So kind of take us from there of um, how did some of the conversations happen with you really have something here that you could maybe make a company, um, from.
2: Yeah. well Yeah. Go ahead, Rory. You, you from your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> well,
3: no, so I think we, so one of the things that we did immediately after the conference was we decided that at minimum we wanted to keep working on the project. And so we found a way to essentially, um, you know, get a few of the people from the original project team uh, involved in the spring semester, uh, to sign up for an independent study in electrical engineering or an independent study in mechanical engineering and get some class credit and elective credit for working on this, basically. Uh, and we decided that we were, we were going to do that immediately, right? And so we said, we are going to put some time into this. We are going to make it happen in the spring, keep developing the product, get it to a better state, all of those types of things. And in parallel, we started talking uh, to Samir, you know, and we started... Uh, you know, Samir was obviously very interested in 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 getting involved and either just supporting it or just being involved in team directly, like anything to get the thing to market, which was awesome, right? I mean, we had somebody who not just was a supporter at the conference, but somebody who was like, "Let's do this," or like, "You need to do this." <laughs> um, and so, I think that pushing certainly helped a lot. Um we ended up uh you know reaching the decision point and uh, where Samir came out to Boston for a weekend um and you know me and Samir and Mosley sat in a room and we kind of hashed out what it would look like to found a company um and all of the kind of initial logistics of um you know how the company would be structured and and kind of all of the administrative things behind what it would look like um just logistically where would it be would it be in Boston would it be in California um all of these types of things and I think we walked out of that weekend with a, with a pretty good game plan that this is something we wanted to do. We went out and found a, um, you know, some corporate attorneys to help us with some of the incorporation work. And we ended up actually incorporating the company, um, you know, before we had even graduated.
2: And so March, at that point we were, 28th, we were in. <laughs> 2017 is the date of incorporation for Vive. And so say that date one more time, March 28th, 2017
0: and at this point are you still going down the road of this is a phone application like you can still use a 100%. a phone for this okay
3: yep. okay so we are still cell phone powered aed that that is the project at that at that stage
2: excellent and, and, uh, and, and rory said it nicely guys i was probably the most annoying pest that they ever uh, that they ever encountered after that conference just like constantly pushing them but I, that's like how strongly I I like really believed in, in the opportunity. And um, so I'll say, sorry, what is it six years later for being really annoying, but I'm not that sorry now. So. um.
0: (laughs) Okay. So take us through some of those. um, What were some of the, uh, the obstacles you ran into with it being a phone? I mean, what were some of, actually, what were some of the benefits of it being a phone of not just it being, you know, everywhere, but uh, what are some of the benefits that the phone had to being used as an AED?
3: I think some of the big ones to to kind of get us started, um, at least in our thinking at the time, was you could offload a lot of things to a phone. You've got a speaker, you've got a screen, you've got uh, some you know processing power that's on the phone. You've got a battery source that's from the phone, right? You've got all of these things that are um, you know, relatively helpful to make the actual defibrillator piece as small as possible, as affordable as possible. And and that was really the angle we came at it, right? This is something that needs to be small, it needs to be lightweight, it needs to be able to go anywhere, it needs to be uh something of that nature. Um, I think one of the very immediate hurdles that we ran into um was was a regulatory one, which was how do you guarantee as a highly regulated, uh, life-saving, life-critical medical device, how do you guarantee that with every version of a phone and every version of software that can be on that phone that it's going to work? Because that is immediately a red flag, right? What if there is some version or some incompatibility or it only works with these types of phones and you go to use a product and it doesn't work? And And that is a worst-case scenario, right, where you think you've got a product that can save somebody's life you're depending on that product to save somebody's life, you go to use it, and it doesn't work. Um, and so I think the the very quick hurdle that we ran into was, um, I don't know that this is going to be something that is going to fly from a regulatory perspective. Um, and that kind of got us onto a different train of thinking, um, which was how do we get a lot of the benefits from the phone? And how do we incorporate some of the benefits that we see from having a phone into a device? Um, Were these some and,
0: of your attorneys telling you this, or did you kind of arrive at these conclusions yourself?
3: Um, I think it was a combination of attorneys and, and some of our regulatory advisors that we got involved with the company. So maybe less the legal attorneys, but more so, you know, FDA regulatory experts, um, quality ex- re- regulatory experts, um, you know, people who, who have really lived this and breathed this their entire careers. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. So what was your solution for some of those issues?
3: Well, we, um, yeah, the solution is, is the Avive Connect AED. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, uh, it, so in general, um, well, we're, the way we approach it is we believe that one of the largest benefits that we can incorporate from the phone into a device other than size and cost savings and things of that nature, is connectivity. Devices um, up until that point were largely, if not all, um, very limited on this front. And they were the device that, you know, it works if you get it there and if you know how to use it, but it doesn't really solve the issue of where is this thing? Um, what is its status? And is it going to work when and where you need it? Um, and so we really believe from an early stage that one of the most valuable aspects of the phone is the fact that you've got this Wi Fi, this cellular, this GPS connectivity that you can utilize in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, whether that is maintenance of your products, whether that is knowing how to get a product to the patient who needs it, whether that is transferring data that's valuable. There's a lot of really interesting use cases that come out of that, but we thought that connectivity was one of the core assets that we had when we were using the phone. The second big one was um, on a technological scale, we had taken what is traditionally a battery that is the size of our product almost at this point, um, and we had been able to make a functioning defibrillator from a battery that fits in your cell phone. And that's a pretty different and interesting way to architect a defibrillator. And so one of the ways that we go about making our device very small uh, in in the same spirit of a phone is it's a rechargeable battery, just like your phone is. And it's something that is not the size of a typical AED battery. It's very small. Um, And so we've taken a lot of the technology that we had, even though it's maybe coming from a different thing, it's not coming from an external phone, it's coming from an internal battery. We've taken the same technology and applied it to kind of get those same Size uh, decreases and and some other advantages that we believe in as well. Um, so the size of it and the portability could stay. We just had a dedicated internal battery and we didn't have to rely on the phone to get all of your power source, um, like we had in the original prototypes. Um, so connectivity, uh, the the battery architecture, um, and then there were a few other you know learnings that we had from the user interface of using the phone as. You know, how you use this product that we really applied as well right so having graphics that you know you see while you're using the uh, while you're using the device in addition to audio instructions we now have a screen on our actual product right so there's a few different parallels but in a lot of ways we're trying to take some of these advantages that we see from a phone and and apply them to to the aed in the end as well
0: and so samir from your understanding you're, you've been in the space for um for a few years now what was your understanding of how this was going to uh, address some of the problems of uh, current AEDs? You know, certainly there have been laws that have passed that we have AEDs all over the country. How would this become different than some of the ones that are on the market?
2: Well, when when we initially started with a cell phone powered AED, the first thought in my mind was uh, in my mind was access. Right, and so increasing accessibility of the device, and that was really the thesis then. Alongside some of these other things, when we really shifted our focus to what Rory just described, which is creating this connected, highly portable, um, approachable device—is a word we use a lot—trying um, to make it feel like something we use every day of our life. Um, you know, to to me, um, it solved a you know a number of issues. But I think the one that that makes the biggest impact um, for us is exactly what Rory said, which is connectivity. Connectivity is the gateway to so much more than what we have today. And it's the gateway to integrating the defibrillator into the system of care that exists in communities today for responding to a cardiac arrest emergency. So we can build a nice portable device. We can make it look all uh, fancy. Um, it can be rechargeable now like it is. All of these things are cool. But if we can't figure out how to network that device into a system of response such that we're getting it to patients more quickly and more often than we are today, we've missed the boat and we've solved the wrong problem in my mind. Um, we we can add more complexity to the AED. We can add more features that help you even when you get the AED there. But if we can't get the AED to the patient's side, we can't. N- none of that matters at the end of the day. And so I think connectivity... Um, really opened our eyes to exploring really unique ways to solve what we call the delivery problem um, uh, in a cardiac arrest emergency of early intervention and early defibrillation. Um, and I think that's that's probably where we feel most excited, not only today, but about what we can do going forward in the future um, to even improve the system of response even more.
0: So again, in your understanding of how AEDs um traditionally have been built how they have been uh deployed um how their um look is somewhat intimidating and um you know we even see uh AED cabinets even today that say for trained responders only um no. they uh they they don't look like something that's useful how did that go into Uh, some of your ideas for the design of your current AED.
2: Yeah, I I can start. Go go ahead if you want to add more. Um, You know, I I think the approachability thing doesn't seem like maybe it'd be forefront in our minds, but I think it's everything. Um, After you get the device there, um, making someone feel empowered such that they can figure out uh, how to use this thing on their own in the probably most stressful situation that they'll ever encounter in their life. If you're a layperson bystander in particular is absolutely paramount. Um, And I do this little thing when we onboard somebody today, I know Rory probably does it also. I stick an AED in front of them and I say, go. And uh, the, the, the response is uh, amazing. It's like this, like, Oh my gosh, what am I? And it's not even an emergency. Right. And so um, I think uh, that, that sentiment and that feeling, um, while AEDs today certainly save lives and they've saved countless lives, um, trying to break down that barrier of feeling like I can do this and I'm empowered to do this. And this thing's going to help me, uh, to me was, was very important. I think to our team was very important, but Rory, why don't you talk about some of the specifics that we, that we thought of when it comes to how we solve that?
3: Some of it comes down to uh, the interface, right? So when you look at the product, do you is your immediate reaction when you first look at that product one of, oh my gosh, that looks like a complicated medical device, or is it one of, okay, I could pick that thing up, and that tiny little initial reaction we we believe is critical. Um, yes, you can put signage yes you can try to do more trainings yes you can try to bring more awareness and we should do all of those things but you need to have a product that has a reaction that is as much as possible one of i can do this as opposed to one of i'm scared to do this or i'm intimidated to do this and we believe that um some of the design decisions whether it's you know the screen being right there on the front just like you're used to interacting every day with your phone whether it is the uh, industrial design of the product that is, you know, a little bit more rounded and it looks and feels like a consumer product, not like the box that feels more medical. Um, those types of small details and the design of what it looks like um, we believe uh, contribute to that and and make it such that it's going to be the reaction that we want. And one that is more likely to get somebody to be willing to uh, either pick it up and bring it to that person who needs it or when they get there, actually use it on the person who who needs it.
1: And I just want to point out, this is so cool to me that you're talking about these characteristics that most companies, when they are thinking about these things, are thinking about selling a product. You're thinking about having somebody save a life with this product because of these characteristics. I just think that's that's so cool. It's very awesome.
2: I'll add one more, Brandon, that like was um, really eye-opening to us. And so when you use our... Um, when you power on our AED, um, in, in, every AED, the, the pads typically, traditionally today depict a male, right? Um, our AED, the visual instructions, as well as the pads for pra- pra- depict a, a bare breasted female, which is totally different than any other AED on the market today, but very intentional. Um, we did a ton of usability testing early on where we asked untrained lay people to come and use our device and evaluated if they could use it safely and effectively um, and, and and get that life-saving shock to, um, in that case, a mannequin, but a simulated person uh, quickly, right? And we wouldn't just test like a mannequin with a white t-shirt. We would put coats on them. We would put um, bras on, on the mannequins. We would put three layers um, so that it was complicated and they had to figure out how to um, actually make sure we were placing pads on bare skin. And what was really interesting to us is when we put a bra on a mannequin, people wouldn't take it off and you'd have situations where you'd have pads touching underwire, which could be dangerous, as you guys are aware and know. And so we thought, well, let's add the simple instruction, um, expose the patient's bare chest, including bra. And then let's also show a bare-breasted female. And the minute we did that, the bras came off. But it's like those small things that um, we, we really deeply care about that is maybe different than how other um, companies have approached this, but we think makes the smallest difference in this in the moment when someone is incredibly stressed and trying to respond to this patient. That can ultimately help save a life. Even that one, two, three percent better really, really, really makes a difference in our eyes. So,
0: out of curiosity, was that done with a lot of research? I mean, we know that uh, pretty clearly that females get. CPR much less often than males is that something you knew or is that uh just something that you kind of uh inferred based on you know just some information that you had
2: Definitely knew it um we, we you, the statistics are there the research is super clear um that bystander intervention with females is just way less right than males and so to us like it's it's a way to create a little more um, uh, equitable response um, for both genders and I'm sure we'll talk about this later as well, where um, disparities of all kinds are a huge problem in, in cardiac arrest. A, a disparity in, in this situation is is gender, right? And so um, we definitely knew it, but um, I think we it became pretty clear, Rory, you might add something here as well, during the usability testing that we did.
3: Yeah, I would describe it as it's one of those things, you know the statistic and you know that there's research about it, Um and, you know, we thought probably going into those studies that we were going to be doing that we've built a device that's a little bit more usable and maybe more designed for the consumer and all these great things. But then when you see it and you see it in your own usability studies, you see it with your product, you see it in these scenarios, it really crystallizes the, the stat that you know from the research, right? And I think that that's the jump that we probably needed. Um, and I think that when we saw it, we were able to really realize, look, this is a uh, improvement area that we need, and we need to do some focus into trying to make this better. Because not only is it a stat, we are we are now seeing that, that stat is very real, um, and we can do these small things to to make it um, happen less.
0: I want to go back to um, the connectivity, which is the, really the part of this that is one of the unique things. We'll talk a, la- a little bit later about the uh, the other thing that, from a healthcare provider, that I find very fascinating. But let's go back to the connectivity. Um, so Samir, I want you to kind of go through, I've heard you say this before. Um, but, uh, if you are in a building and a cardiac arrest happens, uh, just on the other side of the wall, um, take us through kind of that scenario currently, and then how you've used this AVIVE AED to address that.
2: Yeah. And I think you, you set it up perfectly there where let's just walk through that, right? Um, I'm in a building and, um, person next to me drops and collapses. They're not responsive. I call 911, I hope, right. Someone calls 911. Um, what, what, what happens then the 911 operator is going to confirm location, they're going to confirm address, um, and then they're going to start going down a decision tree of questions, right. And one of the first ones that they'll ask is, is this patient responsive? Your answer is probably going to be no. And then I hope they ask, is this patient breathing normally, keyword normally. Um, And if the answer to that is no, right, we're going down in their mind, the cardiac arrest tree. Okay. And um, one of the questions they'll ask as they're about to, they're about to encourage you and ask you to start performing CPR and walking you through CPR instructions is, is there an AED nearby? Well, I don't know. I'm not the expert. You're the expert 911 telecommunicator. You tell me if there's an AED nearby. That is probably the reaction most of the time. There's a lot of data um, that we've gotten from our partner communities that we're, we're going to be deploying our technology and where it's 90 plus percent of the time um, in Jackson, Tennessee, it's actually 97 plus percent of the time. Uh, the answer to that question, is there an AED nearby is no, or I don't know, which is, I think, what we'd all expect to be the case. The funny thing is, it's not funny, actually. The unfortunate thing is there is an AED nearby a lot of the time but it's a data gap and there's lack of situational awareness between the the two parties there. And that's what happens today is you could have an AED across the wall, but the people across the wall or across the building have no idea that you need it in room 205 or whatever it may be. And that data gap is what we really think connectivity can help address by empowering telecommunicators and empowering the key stakeholders involved in a cardiac arrest response, the bystander, the telecommunicator, downstream providers that are going to come take care of this patient with data at the right place at the right time to help create a more streamlined system. Let's, let's, use, um, let's use my literal townhome that I'm in today doing this interview from. Um, I have like four AEDs in the current room that I'm in today. I've got every brand that you... And we're all AED geeks on this podcast. So I've got a bunch of AEDs here. But I have a community pool that's literally 100 feet away from me. I can hear people um, in the community pool if I open my window. And if a cardiac arrest were to happen at the community pool, which wouldn't be crazy to think about it, cardiac arrests happen at pools, I would have no idea that those people need help until I hear the sirens from EMS show up through the, through the gates um, 8, 9, 10, 15 plus minutes later, depending on, on, on how stretched thin EMS is at the moment. But during that entire period of time, I could have run over 100 feet and helped save that person's life, but I just didn't know that they needed defibrillation or they needed that help. And that is the key problem today that we're trying to address at Avive um, through connectivity.
0: So, Rory, take us through that technology that you're using um, in the 911 centers to identify where is the cardiac arrest? And then because we have AEDs that are connected, how can we identify where those AEDs are and potentially get that uh, that, um, AED to the location of that cardiac arrest?
3: Well, what we've done is we've integrated with existing softwares and technologies that are already used in the 911 center and that already have location data of that caller. So when you call 911, they have tools such that they know your lat-long GPS location or they can ask for an address if, you, if you're calling for something that's not directly where your phone is, for example. But the point is that we have a location of a suspected cardiac arrest and Samir described the decision tree of is this person responsive, is this person breathing normally, and that's the you know cardiac arrest decision tree. Now what we've done is that 911 uh, telecommunicator has a button that they can press uh, with some of those existing softwares. It's the launch of IVE button. And when they press that button, because they've gotten those inputs of um, not responsive, not breathing normally, and they have a location of the potential arrest, that sends a signal to us at IVE and any of our AEDs or any of our mobile app uh, users that are nearby that cardiac arrest will receive an alert. So the AED will literally start audibly sounding and the screen will light up showing you a map of here's where you are, your neighbor across the street or in Samir's example, the uh, you know somebody at the community pool 100 feet from your home needs this device. Can you bring it there to help save their life? On your phone, you'll get an Amber Alert type of notification where it's here's where you are, here's where the nearest AED is, here's where the patient is. Can you bring this this AED or can you just go help perform CPR to help save this person's life? And so by integrating into the 911 center, we're able to get that information um, very quickly after that person has called 911. And we're able to, you know, actionize it in the sense that we have our AEDs in our apps that get deployed Uh, for people who, like Samir, may not have otherwise known that there was a cardiac arrest happening right next door, but would be more than willing to grab their AED and go help save that person's life. And by doing that um, in an organized fashion, we've initiated this program that we call the 4-Minute City Program, where we have all of these different stakeholders involved and bought in, and we have a high enough density of these connected devices uh, spread around a community such that we believe and we aspire to get a a situation where we can get an AED to any patient in that four-minute city uh, within four minutes. And so with this type of system, um, we think we can dramatically improve how quickly that patient gets pads on them and their first defibrillation shock, which, as we all know, is one of the most critical, if not the most critical thing that we can do to improve survival rates.
0: And so before we go into that 4 minute city when we talk again about the connectivity and then you talked about the 911 center knowing where these AEDs are and hitting this button um after they hit the button do they have oversight and can they do they have or I'm sorry do they have visibility of where these AEDs are what the ETA of this AED can they give the person who has this AED any additional information on where a patient may be, um, or how can they get that there a little bit faster?
3: They do. One of the beauties of this technology is that it's a it's a two-way communication. So typically when a device, because there are devices out there, um, they can contact 911, right? If we've used the Uber app, for example, you can call 911 within the app, or if you have a watch, it can... Uh, sometimes detect things and you know try to contact nine one one automatically. This is actually the first time where nine one one can contact a device. It's usually the other way around, where the device realizes something's wrong and sends a kind of SOS type message. I need help. This is the case where the nine one one center is saying, "Go alert these devices that are out in the world so that they can go be used." But once that button is pressed, to your to your question. Um, we are streaming data back to the 911 center as well. So we are streaming the location of those AEDs and or those mobile app responders. So they can see that there are three AEDs en route uh, or there's maybe one AED en route, but there's two others that are close by that are potential options. Uh, They can see that there's one mobile app responder en route and they can see that location as that person moves towards the cardiac arrest. That allows them to do a few things. One, when that person is, Getting close, they can you know tell the uh, the the caller that hey there is a responder coming and they are about to you know be at the gate of the pool. Can you please go let them in? Right. So that gives the, the caller a little bit more confidence that this is somebody who's coming to help them. And um, you can also send notes, so the telecommunicator can add in uh, notes that essentially give information that might be helpful for the response. It might be a gate code. It might be a warning. There's a dog out front that you should be careful with. It might be the apartment number in a large building because how else would you know which room to go to? So it can be a variety of things, but you can send notes to the device that are received uh, to the person responding. Once you're actually using the product, we have data that goes back to the telecommunity as well. So for example, if a few minutes have gone by and you can see that the device has been activated, but you see that pads haven't been placed on that patient yet, you know that there's probably something going on and the telecommunicator can use that as a prompt to say, is everything okay? Do you see the uh, pads that are associated with this device and can you put them on that patient? Is there any problem there? So they can kind of prompt these questions that um, give them visibility into what is going on at the scene that today doesn't exist at all. I mean, Even if you have that case, which is the desired case where you do get an AED there before EMS arrives, the telecommunicator other than what they can maybe overhear in the background it's kind of chaotic they have no idea what's going on at that scene and so having the visibility of location of status of what's happening is extraordinarily valuable for them to to help that response in any way that they can
1: you've been listening to medic class citizen if you like what you heard check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com also find us on social media where you can follow like subscribe and share Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.